Good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3. Before we begin this morning, let me explain exactly what it is that we're about to do here. Uh, many of us come from a wide range of church backgrounds, and I'm uh, guessing that some of you, uh, like me, uh, did not grow up going to church. Uh, maybe today's the first time you've ever been uh, to church, and this sermon is the first of its kind that you're ever hearing. And so let me just explain what we're about to do. Uh, we believe that the God who created all things has spoken to us through his written word, the Bible. And so my task as the preacher is to present God's word to you, to explain what it means, and then explain how we might apply it in our lives. And your task as the hearer is to listen attentively, uh, to have your Bibles open in front of you that you might see how what I'm saying is coming from the text, uh, and then to think about and process uh, what is being said. And that's basically what we're doing. Uh, our, our roles now are clear, hopefully. Uh, but none of that, right, my preaching, uh, your listening, none of that is really of any spiritual value unless the Holy Spirit is at work amongst us. Like in order for this to be more than just uh, an educational lecture, uh, more than just a transference of information, uh, in order for uh, souls to be saved and uh, brought to life, in order for hearts to be convicted and changed, uh, in order for God's people to be pressed on towards holiness, in order for us to really see and enjoy God's glory, God must be at work. And so we're going to start by praying together and asking that God would bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the immense privilege and the joy that we have to look now into your word. We acknowledge that you speak to us through the Bible, and so we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. We are a sinful and a stubborn people, and we need you to break through the hardness of our hearts. And so please, Father, use this passage this morning to convict us and to change us and to conform us into the image of your Son. And we ask this all in his name. For his glory. Amen. Luke chapter 3, we're in verses 1 through 14. Uh, this is the word that God has for you today. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Our passage this morning is all about this man, John the Baptist, and his message, a message of repentance. Now, if you've been around since the beginning of our study in the Gospel of Luke, you'll know that this is not the first time that John's name has come up. The narrative portion of the Gospel begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5, with the announcement of the birth of this man, John. You'll remember the angel Gabriel appears to a priest named Zechariah in the temple and tells him that him and his barren wife Elizabeth, uh, though they're advanced in age, that they were going to bear a son and that that son, John, would be the forerunner to the long-awaited Messiah. Right? He would be the one to go before Jesus to prepare the people. And then later in chapter 1, we read about his birth. And it's at his birth that John's father, Zechariah, proclaims the Benedictus, in which he prophesies that John would be, indeed, this forerunner. Look at Luke 1, verses 76 and following. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Right? That's his job. Now skip ahead to verse 80, and this is the last verse about John until our passage in Luke chapter 3, because remember Luke chapter 2 is all about the birth and the childhood of Jesus. Luke 180, and the child, this is referring to John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well now as we begin chapter 3, the day of his public appearance to Israel has come. Look at how Luke starts the chapter. Right now we're in chapter 3. He doesn't begin with a sketch of John, and he doesn't even begin with the words of John. But he starts by marking the events of the chapter with the rulers of the day. So you've got Tiberius Caesar. He is the successor to Augustus. Right? We talked about Augustus a couple of weeks ago. He's the guy who ordered the census in Luke chapter 2. You've got Pontius Pilate. Uh, we certainly know that name. You've got Herod. This is not Herod the Great, who was mentioned in Luke chapter 1, the guy who ordered the death of all the babies at the time that Jesus was born. This is Herod Antipas, uh, Herod the Great's son. Uh, you would think that if uh, your name was Herod, 
uh, you'd be kind to your son and give him a better life than you had, but apparently not. He names his son Herod. This son Herod, Herod Antipas, this is the same Herod who would put John the Baptist in jail and question Jesus at his trial. And you know the names Annas and Caiaphas, those should ring a bell as well. But notice that these names are not just a chronological marker. Because if that was Luke's intent, if that was his sole intent, well, he could have stopped at in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Right? Notice that the rest of the list, if you think about it, it just doesn't narrow down the time frame any further. No, what Luke is giving us here is something even more significant than chronological background. He's giving us the redemptive historical background. Because you know what Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and Philip and Lysanias, what what all those guys who were ruling over the Jewish lands, either directly or indirectly, you know what they had in common? It's not just that they were evil. Although, as J.C. Rowell notes, there is hardly a name in this list which is not infamous for wickedness. It's not just that they were evil. It's that they're all foreigners. None of them are Israelites. And none of them are from David's line. None of them are God's anointed. Which takes us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Remember that one of the covenant curses for Israel's disobedience was that they would serve other nations. That they would be under foreign occupation. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Sure, the Babylonian exile is over, and sure, they're back in the promised land, but they were still occupied by pagan idolaters. From Tiberius Caesar to Pontius Pilate to Herod Antipas. Even the two Jewish names in that list are very telling. Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest of that time, and his father-in-law, Annas, well, he was the former high priest, but he still exercised considerable influence. Even those two names serve to illustrate this point, because the highest religious authorities in the land were these two corrupt, ungodly men who were really only in those positions because they'd been placed there by Rome. That's the situation described in verses 1 and 2. And so you may remember Zechariah perfectly described Israel's situation in the Benedictus as those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Israel is a people that is continuing to experience the judgment of God for their sin against him, right? They've been living for hundreds of years under foreign occupation, under the rule of Tiberius and Herod and Pontius Pilate. That is the seemingly hopeless, dark, redemptive historical backdrop that Luke paints for us. But against that background, one of the most significant events in 400 years— happens, and we might miss it because it's kind of tucked away at the end of verse 2. Look down at your Bibles. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, in particular the Old Testament prophets, well that phrase should ring a bell. It's exactly how many of the Old Testament prophets are introduced. The word of the Lord came to blank, the son of blank, during the reign of blank. 
Well, God's word has come to God's prophet to speak to God's people after 400 years in which God was silent. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so you've got Tiberius Caesar ruling and reigning in Rome, the most powerful man in the known world. And you've got Herod and all the other tetrarchs ruling from their thrones. And you've got Annas and Caiaphas. They're running the Jewish religious establishment. You've got a list here of the most powerful and influential men of the day. But all of them are just going to become a historical footnote. As evidenced by the fact that the rest of this gospel is not about these men. No, the rest of the book is about the subject of the word of God that came to John. And those men are only going to appear in this book as they relate to that subject. So what was John's mission? What was his mission as a prophet of God? What did he come to do? Well, just think about his name. He's John the Baptist. That is not referring to uh, a proper view on believer's baptism. Though we should note that there is nobody named John the Presbyterian in the Bible. (laughs) This is referring to his mission, right? What he came to do. He came to baptize people. Now let me give you just a point of clarification right up front, right? Because this might be a little confusing. When we think baptism, we often think of a Christian uh, standing in front of the gathered church and uh, sharing their testimony of salvation and and making a public profession of their faith and uh, then being brought into the water, Right? And then out of the water to uh, signify their identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. That's not what this is. Right? That is not what John's baptism is. And maybe the clearest evidence that John's baptism was entirely different from what we might call Christian baptism is that in Acts chapter 19, Paul runs into a bunch of guys who received John's baptism only. Well, they're rebaptized. Right, this time with a Christian baptism. Uh, and so clearly they are two separate things. So then what is John's baptism? Well, Luke tells us, look at verse 3. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pick that apart a little bit. It's a baptism of repentance. Uh, that is, it was a baptism that would call people to repent of their sins. And when I say repent, repentance, uh, the word in the Greek refers to a turning. So you can picture someone in your mind's eye just kind of walking down a path, right? The path of life, uh, a path of sin and wickedness and ungodliness and prioritizing self and idolizing other things instead of God, right? You're walking down that path and then you turn. You turn now towards a life of faith, of trusting God, of obeying his commandments. Now you're walking this way, right, because God is a holy God and because you have sinned against him. You're walking straight to hell, to judgment, to damnation. But then the person repents, he turns, God grants that person repentance. Well, they're born again. A new creation. The the one spiritually dead person is now given life. And so they turn to this new life of worshiping God. And so here we can 
clear up a, a common misunderstanding because some people will say, well, if you preach the necessity of repentance, then you're not preaching salvation by faith alone. And I would argue that's a false dichotomy, right? You're falsely pitting repentance against faith because turning away from sin is by definition turning towards God. That is, repenting of your sin is faith in God. They're just two sides of the same coin. It's like if I'm walking east and then I turn around. Well, am I turning away from the east or am I turning towards the west? The answer is both because they're two sides of the same coin. And so it's the same thing with faith and repentance. Both are gifts from God. God grants repentance just like God grants faith. But God always grants them in conjunction. Like there are not those to whom God grants repentance but not faith or faith but not repentance because they're two sides of the same coin. I think one of the best illustrations of that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so they're turning from idols, away from idols. They repent of their previous lifestyle of forsaking God and worshiping these idols and seeking their own glory. But simultaneously, two sides of the same coin, they turn to God. They turn to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. So John preached a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was an outward sign of a heart that's been turned away from sin and towards God. But there's more. Because look again. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is crucially important for us to understand because repentance alone is not enough to be saved. Let me explain what I mean. Suppose you were to repent perfectly. Like you've been walking in a life of sin, but now you repent and you turn and you turn away from your life of sin towards God. And for the rest of your life, you never sin again. And you perfectly worship God with your life. Forget the fact that that's impossible. Or suppose you could do that. Well, you would still go to hell. Not because of the perfect life that you've lived since you've repented, but because of all the sins that you committed before you repented. It's not like your newly perfectly repentant life from this point forward can somehow make up for all of your previous sins or atone for the ways in which you've disobeyed God all your life up to that point. And so what you need, what we all need, is the forgiveness of sins. And just to be clear, that's not just the sins that you committed before you repented, but also all the sins that you continue to commit even after you get saved, even as you're trying to genuinely pursue a life of holiness, even as you worship the true and living God. You need the forgiveness of sins. But John... John could do nothing for his followers in that regard because John himself was a sinner. But remember his role. His role is to be 
a forerunner, one who would go before. And look at verses 4 through 6. Luke cites Isaiah 40 to drive home that point. John was the forerunner that Isaiah prophesied about, the one who would go before the king to make sure that the metaphorical roads would be ready, level, without obstacles, without hindrances, the one who would cry, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist was this forerunner, a forerunner for the one who was to come who could actually grant the forgiveness of sins. And so people would come to him and they would confess that they're sinners and they would repent. They would turn from their sin. They would turn towards God. And John would point them to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John would baptize them in the Jordan to prepare them for Christ. Through their public acknowledgement of their desire to be cleansed and have their sins forgiven, which is exactly what Christ came to do. And so we shouldn't understand John's baptism as conferring any forgiveness of sins. No, all his baptism did was point to Jesus. And we'll talk more about this next Sunday. To point to Jesus, the one who, through his person and his work, through his death and his resurrection, could actually provide atonement for sins. Listen to how Paul describes John's ministry in Acts 19.4. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Like, that's John's job. That's the function of his baptism. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so in that sense, it's kind of similar to some of the ceremonial washings that we see in the Old Testament. For example, you may remember when God gave the people the law at Mount Sinai. Well, what does he tell them to do? Consecrate the people and let them wash their garments and be ready. Well, why wash your garments? Does God like clean clothes? No. It's that the washing symbolized they're preparing to meet with God. That they understood that they were unclean. They're separated from God because of their sin. And so they need God's abundant mercy to even approach him in this way. John's baptism then isn't all that different. Which brings us now to John's message. So everything that we've talked about so far was just the background. We we now know who John is, and we now know what it was that he proclaimed in terms of a baptism of repentance. But you'll notice that John hasn't actually said a word in our text yet. John preached repentance, but, but what does John preach about repentance? What is he saying? Well, that's the main thrust of our message here, right? This, that's the main thrust of our passage. Uh, look at verses 7 through 14. So what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to look at the four points that John preached about repentance. And so our four points are going to be his four points, right? And we're going to think about how we might apply these points about repentance to our own lives. And so point number one, the first thing that John has to say about repentance in our passage is that repentance is not religious rituals. Repentance is not religious rituals. He said, therefore, to the crowds, this is verse 7, that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, Luke doesn't tell us anything about uh, John's appearance, but we know from Matthew and Mark that he wore clothing made of camel's hair with a belt around his waist. He's not exactly uh, preachers and sneakers here. But even more than that, his message, right? Let's just, let's just say his message, not exactly what we would call secret sensitive. You've got your church growth consultants, and they're like, John, you really should gear your messages towards making people feel good about themselves. You know, you don't want them to feel bad about them. You want them to come out with positive vibes and energy. And John's like, you brood of vipers, you need to repent. A brood, right? You should be picturing like a a bunch of baby snakes that were kind of hatched together. You children of vipers. And surely his audience made the connection right away. He's calling them the offspring of the serpent, children of the devil. I mean, think about that. Who is he preaching to? He's not preaching in the market. He's not going to the taverns. He's not preaching in the public squares. He is preaching specifically to those who came all the way out to the wilderness to be baptized by him. He's telling them that they are a brood of vipers. Why? Well, Matthew helps us to piece this together a bit. Matthew 3, 7, he tells us in the parallel passage to ours in Luke, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism. There you go. If we know anything about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Jewish religious elite of the day, it's that they were big on ceremony and ritual. And so John questions them and those who came with them who warned you to flee from the wrath of to come. Now that can be interpreted in any number of ways, but I think what he's getting at here is basically, who told you that by being baptized, by undergoing this religious ritual, you're able to flee from the wrath to come? That's a theme that we're going to see repeated over and over and over again in this gospel. Uh, Jesus himself confronts the religious establishment of the day. That point number one, repentance is not about religious rituals. Friends, I think this is a point that demands us to search our own hearts as well. Is your repentance more than just going through religious rituals? Because at the end of the day, here's the thing. How often you go to church when you were baptized, that's a big one how often you take the Lord's Supper, those things ultimately don't matter at all in the sense that there's a lot of people who have gone through all of those religious rituals and more without ever having repented. And such people, in spite of all of the religious rituals that they have gone through, they're still in their sin. In John 3.36, the wrath of God remains upon them. Point number one, repentance is not religious rituals. Point number two, repentance is not about your lineage. Verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Now John cuts right at the heart of his Jewish audience. Do not begin to say to yourselves, like we might say, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. Implying that that would be their go-to defense. You're telling us to repent? You're telling me to repent? Don't you know who I am? I am the offspring of Abraham. Abraham is my father. I am a true Jew. And John's like, it doesn't matter who your father is. It doesn't matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter what your lineage is because God can take these stones. And remember, they're out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. You can picture him pointing to a bunch of stones on the ground. He's saying, God can take these stones and raise up children of Abraham. You brood of vipers. Don't you see That the God who created Adam from the dust of the ground is not bound in any way by your genealogy and your family tree in judging your unrepentant heart. Point number two, repentance is not about your lineage. Perhaps there's some of you here today for whom the application is by direct analogy. You grew up in the church. Your father was a pastor. Your uncle was a deacon. You were raised by faithful Christians. Now those are all wonderful blessings for which you ought to be very thankful. And God can use those wonderful blessings as a means to bring about repentance in his children. But none of those in itself is genuine repentance. And none of those, despite what the Jews of John's day might have thought, None of those obligates God in any way. Now let me speak to the children in the room. I am happy that you come to church with your parents. And you ought to be thankful that you have parents who love you enough to bring you to church every Sunday. But remember, repentance is not about your parents. Repentance is not about who your mom is or who your dad is. Repentance is about you and you and you and you and you and you. You must repent. You must have your sins forgiven. You must come to Christ. It's like what Jesus would say later on. I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And so you can see how point number two, repentance is not about your lineage, is closely related to point number one. Repentance is not about religious rituals. Because in both cases, there is something, whether it's who we are or what we do, there's something that makes us think we're okay. Repenting is for them and not for me. I will be safe. I will not surely die because of the religious rituals that I've undergone, or because of who my lineage is. But point number two, repentance is not about your lineage. But friends, I want you to notice that John's point here isn't just that unrepentant sinners can't hide behind their family. Because if that's all that he had to say, well, none of us would have any hope, because we are all, by nature— unrepentant sinners, regardless of who our family is. Now, John's point is also that God can 
Raise up children from, for Abraham from stones. And metaphorically, metaphorically speaking, right, that's exactly what he does. God takes rebellious, hard-hearted, hearts of stone, spiritually dead sinners, sinners like you and me, who are worthy of nothing but his judgment and his wrath, and he grants to them faith and repentance. He grants to them new life. He allows them to be born again. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, true repentance requires something much, much greater than just rituals or lineage It requires a radical turning, a wholesale change, a complete transformation. And that's exactly what God does by his grace, right? He raises up children of Abraham from stones, dead stones, by turning them away from their sin and towards himself. Which brings us to point number three. Repentance is bearing fruit. Just picture yourself among the crowds. You're one of those who are actually genuine about seeking repentance. Right? Forget about everybody else there. You yourself are genuine about seeking repentance. John has just told you that repentance is not about rituals. John has just told you that repentance is not about who your family is. But that repentance is this wholesale change that only God can bring about. And you're really brought to your knees. You really do Come to the end of yourself. You really do look to the one that John preaches about. Jesus. But you've got questions. Okay, John, you're telling us that we have to turn uh, from our previous life of sin. uh, But look at verse 10. What then shall we do? What does it look like for us to repent? And that, by the way, is a question that we see over And over again in the Bible, the Pentecost crowd, they were cut to the heart. They asked the same question. The Philippian jailer, he asked the same question. It's a natural question that we ask when we come to the end of ourselves. What then shall we do? Look at John's answer in verse 11. He answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He tells them that one of the evidences of your repentance, it's as simple as loving your neighbor. Then a more specific group, tax collectors. They also ask the same question, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Tax collectors were known for extorting and cheating people. There was some minimum amount that they had to collect for the government. And basically, whatever they could get on top of that was, uh, in terms of tolls or or customs, was uh, for them to keep. And so uh, many tax collectors would take advantage of that. So if you ever read the Gospels, you'll know the expression, uh, tax collectors and sinners. The profession itself basically became a byword for wickedness. 
biblical scholars think that the only modern-day term that so strongly defines someone in such a negative light is Yankees fan. (laughs) Brood of vipers. But notice what John does not say here. John does not tell them to leave their jobs. He simply tells them, do your current job honestly. Collect what you're authorized to collect and no more. And so this is like a Zacchaeus-esque repentance. Behold, Lord, uh, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. It's just about doing your job honestly. A third group comes to him, the soldiers. They ask him the same question. What are we to do? Verse 14, he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Again, you don't have to quit your job. Just do your job honestly. No extortion, no threatening, no false accusation. Just be content with what you earn and do your job honestly. And so John's responses to the people are interesting, if for no other reason than just how ordinary they are. You want to know what repentance looks like? You want to know whether your heart has truly changed from serving yourself to serving God? Well, just go and do the same things that you were doing before, but do them honestly. Do them to the glory of God. That's what repentance looks like in your life. Now, that doesn't mean that it was easy. He specifically points out these sins because these were the sins that especially beset people in those professions. Right, where discontentment with wages would almost like naturally lead to such dishonest behavior. You want to prove to yourself that your repentance is real? That's what it's going to look like. Now just to clarify so that nobody leaves this room confused, he is not telling these tax collectors and these soldiers to be honest so that they might be saved. He's telling them that the specific evidences of repentance in their lives, evidence that God had indeed saved them, well, that will come from a change in how they go about their work. Basically the same thing that John later says in 1 John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It's not if we keep his commandments, then we will be saved and come to know him. No, by this we will know that we have been saved, that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Friends, repentance is bearing fruit. It's an analogy that we see all over the Bible, right? Jesus himself picks up on it, Luke chapter 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. It was true for John's audience. It was true for Jesus' audience. And it is true for every single person in this room who claims to be a Christian. Good trees. Believers who have repented. Believers who have been born again. Believers who have placed their trust in Christ necessarily bear good fruit. Like there is no such thing as someone who is saved, but their life doesn't change. Not that you'll be perfect and never sin again, but if the direction of your life has not changed at all, if there is no hatred for sin, if there is no yearning for righteousness, if there is no genuine pursuit for the things of God, then you have to ask yourself, 
why you believe you are saved. Because you prayed a prayer? You, you walked on aisle? You signed a card? Or is it because you have genuinely repented of your sin and trusted in Christ? A tree is known by its fruit. And maybe the most direct application for us here is that repentance, right, the fruit in our lives, is oftentimes just faithfully living for the Lord within the context that he's already placed us. And so whatever your job is, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is whatever your responsibilities are, uh, whoever you're working for, just doing your job honestly, handling your responsibilities excellently for the glory of God. Or you're married. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is faithfully, lovingly honoring God within your marriage by loving your spouse. You're a parent. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance can be as simple as just being a godly dad or a godly mom, raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You're a child. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance can be as simple as being obedient and submissive to the authority of your parents. You see what I'm saying? Repentance isn't about moving to the mountains and becoming a monk. Oftentimes the clearest fruits of repentance in our lives are seen in the aspects that we might judge to be the most mundane. Point number three, repentance is bearing fruit. Finally, point number four, repentance is urgent. Luke 3, 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Repentance is urgent. Because for those who do not repent, for the fruitless trees, the trees that do not bear any good fruit, well, the outcome is clear. They're going to be cleared away. And that picks up on Old Testament imagery of uh, the fruitless vine being destroyed. Look at how John specifically stresses the urgency. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's not that the axe is kind of put away in storage and we're going to take it out of storage and we're going to sharpen the axe and then eventually we're going to clear all of these dead trees. It's that the axe is right here. It's ready to hack away. Uh, The imminency, the the nearness of judgment is being emphasized here by John. You've got to repent now. So friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you are not a Christian, please don't wait any longer. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Christ. Today is the day to stop trusting in yourself, in your own goodness, in your own works, in your own rituals or lineage or whatever it might be. You are a sinner who deserves the judgment of God. You're on your way to hell and you need to be saved. But the good news is that Jesus, uh, the one of whom John the Baptist testified, Jesus has come to save sinners like you and like me. But unlike John, 
right, who could only point to Jesus and say what he was going to do, I can point to Jesus and tell you what he has fully accomplished. By trusting in him, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again three days later to prove that your sins were forgiven, you can be saved today. So that all of your sin is placed on the cross and instead you receive his perfect righteous record. Like right now, today, urgency, you can be saved if you would repent and trust in Christ. Don't hold off. Don't think, I'm going to get to this when I'm older. I'll deal with it when I have my life together. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. So come to Christ. Repent today and find forgiveness of sins today through the finished work of Christ. But it's urgent. Even now, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Let me close by speaking to those of you who are saved. You have repented of your sins. Praise God. Praise God that he has granted to you faith and that he has granted to you repentance. But I will remind you that repentance is not just a one-and-done deal. Like, well, yeah, I repented years ago. I'm good. I'm okay. I don't need to be repenting anymore. You're probably familiar with Martin Luther and his 95 theses that kicked off the Reformation. Very first thesis, thesis number one, is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther's right. The entire Christian life should be one of repentance. And that doesn't mean that we always walk around in sackcloth and ashes, and that doesn't mean that we're always downcast and depressed because of our sin. To live that way would be to minimize the forgiveness of sins that Christ has fully accomplished on our behalf, that he has separated us as far as the East is from the West from our sins. But the Christian life is a life of repentance in the sense that we as believers ought to constantly be examining ourselves. To see our proclivity to trust in religious ritual, point number one, or religious heritage, point number two, instead of seeing ourselves as nothing and as contributing nothing. To examine our lives constantly for fruit, point number three. Am I producing the fruit of the Spirit? Or am I displaying the works of the flesh? Am I walking in the light as Christ is in the light? Am I loving my brothers and sisters as I ought? Am I genuinely striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? And when in our examination we see how we fall short, and let's be honest, right, our our sin isn't all that hard to find, Do we then double down in stubbornness? Do we harden our hearts? Or do we run to Christ, our all-sufficient Savior, who alone is the grounds of our forgiveness and our sanctification? And do we do this often, remembering 
Point number four, the urgency of the matter. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant to us soft hearts. Lord, that this word would not fall as a seed on stony ground, but that it would find good soil, Lord, that it would remain in our hearts and continue to produce fruit. Father, we acknowledge that that can only be done by your power, and so we pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Change us and shape us by your word. Give us hearts of true repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.